Before Stephen comes to speak to us, the reading is taken from John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any, of, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to be with you today. And let me add my welcome to that you've already received. This is an exciting time in the life of our church. Lots of people connecting in, lots of people encountering Jesus. And we're so excited to begin a new series today, looking at Jesus. We might call it more like Jesus. I'm so moved by what Nisha shared in that story. Looking at how Jesus messes with our categories, challenges, our assumptions, bursts out of our neat little boxes and complexifies our easy answers and provides the answers to every complex question we have in our life. Because one of the most important things about us as human beings is who we understand Jesus to be. One of the most important things about you as a person is what comes to mind, what fills your heart when you think of Jesus. It might be the single most important thing about you. And one of our core convictions, one of my core convictions, is that, is that if people can see Jesus as he is, in all of his beauty and majesty and courage and mercy, they will be captivated by him. And so one of our greatest responsibilities as a church is to offer people a fresh the real Jesus, the authentic Jesus, the unvarnished, the unfiltered, the untinkered with Jesus. And we're going to see today that Jesus is both extraordinarily challenging and completely kind. We live in a time where we really want truth. We're fed up with lies and spin. But so often when people start speaking the truth, when they start being speaking from their authentic self, it can come across a little bit harsh and a little bit cruel. Uh, in our online space, in person, our discourse just becomes a bit harsh and a bit unkind. And we want to implore people who just say what they think all the time. You know, it's great to be at a party with someone who has no filter and just says what they think all the time. But sometimes it can come over a bit harsh. Sometimes it comes at the cost of compassion. Like you feel like, well, life is hard enough as it is. But at the same time, we don't want to be people who just live on spin, who never say what we think and who don't 
tell even our friends and our family what we really think, because that's just insincere. You know, we need a bit more than just, you're amazing, all day, every day, to everyone we meet. And we see in this passage how Jesus, in a remarkable way, holds these two things together. And the first thing we see is that Jesus' challenges are actually really kind. So in this passage, Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's surrounded by loads of people. They've gathered to listen to him speak. And it's a big moment, very public context. They're there to listen to him. And in the midst of it, his enemies, those who oppose him, those who want to take him down, those who want to take him out, come uh, and try and expose him. They burst in, they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded that she must be stoned. So what do you say we do? And it's quite dramatic. Like, you know, we're commanded to stone this person. What do you say we do? And there were laws about adultery in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament that if a man and woman were caught together in the act, then that was what was supposed to happen to them. But because the penalty was so severe, it was highly unusual for people to be punished. And also because it's, I don't know if you've ever tried this, it's quite difficult to catch people in the actual act of adultery. It's just hard. And this was before, like, phones and iPhones, like you couldn't get the receipts, the text messages, you know, you couldn't go into people's DMs, you know, you get their passcodes, see what's really going on behind the screen. Just really hard to catch people in the act of adultery. And so it very rarely happened. And so when you look at the scene, and I worked as a lawyer for a number of years, there are things about it that just don't seem quite right. So they said, we caught her in the very act of adultery. You're like, how? How did you know where she was going to be? How did that happen? Just before Jesus is about to come on the street. That's a bit strange. It sounds like maybe she might have been tricked into something. Or maybe they were setting up something for her. And then there's another problem about this scene. I don't know if you noticed it, but um, I don't quite know how to say this on a Sunday morning. But uh, generally speaking, to commit adultery, you need more than one person, uh, you know, you need two. And so the law would say that the man and woman, if they were caught. And so what's strange about this scene is there's just a woman who's brought before Jesus. And you're like, wait a minute, where's the guy? You know, how has he got off? What's going on? And so it starts to look a little bit unusual. It starts to look a little bit like they might be setting a trap for Jesus. There's also another um, very subtle clue in the text um, that suggests uh, it might, they might have been setting a trap. It's very easy to miss. Uh, but at, on verse 6, it says, they were using this question as a trap. And that kind of, <laughs> that kind of suggests that maybe it was a trap. And, uh, and it's interesting. Don't ask Jesus to decide on her guilt. They've already decided that. Uh, they ask him to decide how she should be punished. You know, it's fascinating. And this is a very, very clever trap. Now, the first thing says that the scribes and the Pharisees, their only job, their only responsibility was to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And then when the Messiah came, to welcome him and declare his arrival. Everything else was white noise. That was the only thing they really had to do with their lives. And what's extraordinary is Jesus is there in their midst and they're spending every bit of energy and curiosity and intelligence to try and take him down. They completely miss it, even though they could have reached out and touched him. And this is the trap, very clever trap. 
Jesus has two options. You always have to be wary in life when people give you two seemingly simple options to a very complex situation. Are you X or Y? Are you this or that? Are you in that camp or this camp? Watch out for the trap. Because on the one hand, the life of the woman is at stake. They're like, Jesus, you've taught about grace and mercy, a bruised reed you won't break, and a smoldering wick you won't snuff out. You're all about kindness and compassion, forgiveness. But was that just patter? Was that just marketing? I mean, when the rubber hits the road, are you going to see this woman punished? Do you still mean what you said? But the second thing's at stake is the law of Moses. They're like, well, this is from God. You know, and you've said, oh yeah, the law's from God. Not one bit of it passes away. But when the rubber hits the road, do you still mean it? So they're daring him to say, yes, the law needs to uphold. Off you go, stone her. And then they could say, gotcha. You've been looking all nice and friendly to everyone. You've been saying you're a whole new compassionate kind of religious leader. But when the rubber hits the road, you're just like all the rest of them. And they would say, here's your Messiah, meek and lowly. And yet you mess up, he'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. He looks nice, but it's just PR. It's marketing. And they'd be able to dismiss him as harsh and cruel. But the risk is they're also daring him to say, no, 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 ignore, ignore the law, ignore what's written. You know, I, I've come to do something a bit different. I know better. And then they'd be like, gotcha. Told you he's not from God. He wants to ignore the law. This is moral relativism. He's not interested in holiness. He's not from God. And they'd dismiss him as a heretic and a fraud. And actually, they might have stoned him there and then. If they were ready to stone someone, they could have stoned him instead. And actually later in John 8, they pick up stones to stone him. And in John 10, they pick up stones again to stone him. So on the one hand, they're saying, are you going to be about pure justice and crush people? Or are you going to be about pure kindness and relativize truth and holiness? And what's fascinating is this happened 2,000 years ago. And even today, we're still reaching between these two concepts. Do we believe in justice or mercy? Do we want to come alongside and support people and understand life is complex at times? Or are we going to take the high line and just say no exceptions? No, the law must always be upheld. Our culture is still wrestling with how to hold together mercy and justice. And Jesus could have said, look, it's a bit busy. I'm a bit busy. I'm busy right now. It's not my problem. It's just not my, can you just go to someone else? There's a rabbi down the road. He's much cleverer than me. Ask him. He could have just backed off. He could have said, well, it's over to you. You've decided she's guilty. You decide the penalty. I don't want anything to do with it. Just wash my hands. And he could have fallen into one of these traps. But what he actually does is he takes a moment and starts writing on the floor. That's a pretty random thing to include. I don't know if you noticed that as Colleen read it. It says he just drew in in the ground. Like, what's he drawing? Like, equations? Like, what is he doing? Like, is he just... You know, one plus N over. I mean, what is he doing? No one knows. It's extraordinary. Twice he does it in this scene. And the person, you know, no one explains why. You know, someone could have just looked a bit closer. Jesus, what's, what's this about? Do you know what I look at when, when I see that? It's almost indisputable proof that this is an eyewitness account from someone who was there. Because they've included a detail which is completely irrelevant to the flow of the story and doesn't help you one way or the other. 
kind of thing, if you're making a story up, you just wouldn't include. But it's there because it happened. I just want to encourage you, if you've never read the Bible, this is a great time to do it. Uh, One of the most important questions in life is, who is Jesus? It's a question we look at a lot on Alpha. I'd really encourage you to come. But I'd also encourage you uh, to take a Bible today. I'll give you one. And, uh, And just read John's Gospel this week. And just see, like, who is Jesus? Because when I read these pages, I think, oh, this, this happened. This is like an eyewitness account of what actually happened. So what does he do? You know, it's, it's interesting because he, he gives himself a moment. He writes on the floor and they keep questioning. They keep questioning. They keep pushing him to respond. And he's got a number of options. It's not the easiest thing to do to respond. You imagine the woman waiting there. Uh, you'll know it, it's not a nice thing to have a lot of people, men, around you holding heavy stones. I mean, stoning a pretty brutal way to die. I mean, still today, in a number of countries in the world, this is a penalty that, you know, Afghanistan, Iran, people are stoned. And what they do is they bury you up to your waist so you can't dodge or run around. And then they just take it in turns to throw rocks at you until you die. I mean, it's brutal. It must have been absolutely terrifying. And this woman, her only hope is Jesus. And he's there writing in the floor. I still remember when I was working as a barrister, I represented this young woman and uh, she was amazing in lots of ways. Uh, She had two young children. uh, She was raising them on her own. And she'd just made a mistake. And I don't want to be trivial about it, but, but she'd taken some money she shouldn't have taken. It was quite a lot of money. And uh, it was just a mistake. And because of that, you know, according to the law, she, you know, she, she was guilty of a, a, an offense. And she, she, under the guidelines, should have gone into prison. And you could just imagine the impact on her, the impact on her two children, both of whom who are under 10. And I remember this case. I mean, I, I represented some people who... Um, Oh, some of you are here now, Jake. Uh, <laughs> I represented all sorts of people, some of whom were uh, quite famous, some of whom were very rich, some of the cases were on the newspapers. I still think to stay is one of the most significant cases I was involved in. Very small, got paid about £10 for it. It wasn't very significant. I was just obsessed with this case. Because I thought, yeah, I get it. She's done something wrong. Yes, she's guilty. But can we not just show her mercy? And I still remember going to court and her being in the dock behind me and explaining to her, look, on, on, on the authorities, you're, you're probably going to go inside. And her having to make arrangements with her extended family to try and take care of the kids and it being brutal. And I remember standing up in court and just thinking, I am not going to sit down until I have persuaded this judge. Like, even if that means my career is going to go down in flames, I just can't do it. And just thinking of every single argument I could think of to try and persuade him not to put this young woman in jail. And after about you know, 15 minutes, the judge actually stopped me mid-flow. I think he was worried I might go on forever. And he said, Mr. Foster, you can stop now. I'm not going to put your client in prison. And I just sat down. And I can still remember how it smelt in the room. I can still remember how it sounded. I remember the tears of her sobbing behind me. I remember my opponent looking at me as like, what's happened? And just the relief, like a wave of relief. Yes, the court's going to show mercy. 
And in a much more striking, significant way, Jesus steps in. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone with her. And with this one extraordinary line, Jesus comforts the disturbed and he disturbs the comfortable. I mean, imagine how it felt for this woman, you know, being publicly shamed, at risk of being publicly executed, and Jesus stands in harm's way. He risks his reputation, his standing, his mission, probably even his life to stand in harm's way for her. I just think today there might be someone here, I felt as I was preparing yesterday, and you feel like you're surrounded by accusers at the moment. Maybe one, maybe many. People saying things about you, questioning your character. And my sense for you is to know that Jesus actually delights in standing between you and your accuser. You can be surrounded by accusers, but if Jesus is with you, their power is limited. You know, he never says it doesn't matter. He never brushes over what she's done. He doesn't ignore what's happened. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't say ignore the law, but he says the one who throws a stone has to be without sin. And in one sentence, he kind of questions the qualification of this group to be jury, judge, and executioner. It's almost like he's saying to them, I know you. I can see into the bottom of your hearts and you're here surrounding this woman holding your stones. Can you say you haven't done anything wrong? Can you say you're innocent? Are you confident to throw a stone knowing you haven't made a mistake, messed up? Maybe even some people think Jesus is saying, done the same thing. Adultery was rampant in that culture. And what happens is one by one, the stones drop as the people realize they can't do it. As Jesus' words make people realize they're in no place to judge, no place to throw a stone at anyone, and they walk away. So interesting. I don't know how you find it in life. I mean, I've never um, had a go at someone for committing adultery, but there are times in life when I'm in danger of being a hypocrite. Most of them are to do with my phone, actually. Um, I don't know if you've noticed on WhatsApp uh, that when you send someone a message, helpfully, it tells you when they've read the message. And uh, helpfully, it tells you um, when they read the message. And so, uh, and actually iMessage does that now as well. And that's a very helpful innovation. Um, it's going to wreck lots of relationships over the years, I think. Because, because I, you know, when people send me a message, I think, look, they're my mates, colleagues. They know I've got a lot on. They know I'm busy. And I kind of give myself a good kind of 24 hours to kind of think about a reply. Sometimes I'll reply sooner, but sometimes, you know, just, you know I'll get there. You know, and it's almost like time passes at a different speed on the phone than it does in real life. And, uh, and, and so I kind of, you know, I'll go and do my thing and do this and do that. And eventually I'll get around to responding as if it's a minute later. Thanks so much. Yeah, here you go. Um, but when I send people a WhatsApp message and I see that they've read it, I'm always a little bit shocked they don't respond instantly. And, uh, and what's even more strange is sometimes you, you, they don't respond and you're kind of expecting a response. And maybe it's quite important to have a response. And um, you're kind of, you don't want to send another one. You know, you don't want 
make it awkward, but it's just kind of there. You think, okay, well, leave me on red, that's fine. I won't judge you for it, I will. But, uh, <laughs> and then sometimes, they're on social media. Like, can you, you know, it's so unhealthy, you know. Oh, I'm just posting a story, got nothing to do today. Yes, you do, respond to my message. You have lots to do today. Isn't it nice, I'm out. No, it's not nice, I don't wanna see that. Use your fingers to type my message. And I apply a very different standard to them than the standard I applied to myself. If you can see other people's sin very clearly, it's often a sure sign you've lost sight of your own. You know you're never more likely to be a hypocrite than when you're judging another person. And it says here, by their conscience being convicted. That's what it means in the Greek. One at a time, they drop the stones, they walk away. The older ones first. And... In one sentence, Jesus does enough to disarm the mob, unravel the trap, and completely undo the accusers. But what a challenge. But what I find fascinating about this is it's still kind. I mean, Jesus, by his challenge, keeps them from killing someone in the midst of their hypocrisy. He not only steps in to defend this woman, but he does so in a way that gives the greatest possible chance of repentance to those who are trying to take him down. It's like even as they're trying to attack him, his challenge to his enemies is laced with mercy. And I just encourage you today, uh, maybe you want to ask the Holy Spirit to say, where am I at risk of judging people? You know, maybe you've never picked up a stone, but in all sorts of ways, we can throw stones at other people. We can uh, get upset at their conduct. We can take something personally. We can be offended. You know, offense is a moment. Offended is a decision. And I find for myself, I know I'm in a slightly difficult place in my heart when I, don't just, when I almost start projecting motives onto other people's conduct. So someone does something, and it's not just, oh, they've done that thing. I think they've done that thing because they want to do X or because they don't care about X or because of this. I start projecting motives onto their conduct. And it's so tempting uh, to let the distance grow and maybe not to throw a stone, but to punish them in our minds without even letting them know about it. Just you know, slightly freeze them out. Maybe you're feeling in your workplace at the moment a little bit like Jesus. The pressure to pick a side, the pressure to polarize, the pressure to answer a quick question. Jesus can give you words today that can transform conversations, transform debates, transform dynamics in your family, your workplace. Jesus' challenges are kind. But the other thing we see in this passage is Jesus' kindness is challenging. Now they all walk away and only Jesus and this woman are left. And it's a really powerful scene. You imagine this woman, she's surrounded by accusers, stones ready, about to die, and then suddenly they all disappear. And Jesus, having lifted up, says, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. He says, then neither do I condemn you. He like declares it. The only person there who was qualified to punish was Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to inflict judgment. He came to bear judgment. Jesus didn't come to stone, but to be stoned. Jesus didn't come to punish, but to be punished. Not to destroy, but to redeem. He says in John, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. And he lifts up here to speak to her. He already knows who's going to atone for her sin. It's not that she hasn't done anything wrong, 
but he's going to take it on his shoulders. He knows what it will cost. He knows where he's going to go to save her. It's almost like he says to her, I'm not going to condemn you, but I will be condemned for you. I'd encourage you, an encounter with Jesus. In an encounter with Jesus, all the shame can go. All the regret you carry can evaporate. Your sin can be washed away. You don't have to fear the consequences of your failures with Jesus. And you can know afresh today, whether you've been following him for many years, it's just been a tough season, or you're feeling like you're spinning, you don't know which way is up, or it's your first time in church today, you can know the breathless wonder of forgiveness. I've experienced that a number of times in my life. And then Jesus says this, go now and leave your life of sin. And it's a bit awkward, sounds a bit strange to our ears, like Jesus is being so nice, he's being so friendly, so loving. It's like, oh, you're being wonderful, Jesus. We really love this. We want to cheer it on. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. It sounds a bit direct. It sounds a bit uh, judgy. But he's not kind of uninterested in her life. He doesn't say this because he's unkind, but because he is kind. Jesus isn't that interested in unconditional affirmation. Not because he doesn't love people, but he loves people too much just to let them do them and let them live their lives and not worry about how they're living their lives. He doesn't just save this woman from her sin. He saves her for a glorious purpose. He wants her to live a life of joy and peace and purpose. So he's not just going to step back and say, look, don't worry about it. Keep living the life you want. Sometimes people say to me, well, you know, is this right or is that wrong or how should I live and all that kind of stuff. And I think the first question is, who do you think Jesus is? Because if you think Jesus is just like a random guy who had five minutes of fame and, you know, said a few interesting things, don't stress, live your life, don't worry about it. But if you think there's a chance he might be the son of God, then you have to take everything he said seriously. And actually, your greatest desires, your greatest dreams, your greatest hopes, you're never going to be properly able to fulfill them outside of a relationship with him. He basically says, don't live like this anymore. It's challenging, but it's also kind. And when someone speaks that kind of truth to you like this, you actually feel quite secure. I'm going to confess something to you now. Is that okay? Just lean in gently. Uh, When I was in my 20s, I went on a work night... Step back a bit. Um, My pastor at my church said to me, Steve, we'd like to start developing you as a leader in the church. So I said, sounds great. And he said, well, why don't we meet up on a Saturday morning, nine o'clock, let's have breakfast and talk about it. I said, sounds great. And then on the Friday night, uh, we had a works party, big works party. And um, we were in this bar and I was chatting to this guy who was on the team, South African, Love South Africans. Uh, he'd just joined the team, and we're having a great conversation. Anyway, somehow in the course of this conversation, he re- I realized this guy, he was like really interested. He said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. And he said, wow, I've met some Christians in South Africa, you know, but you don't seem like a Christian, which I took as a compliment. And he said, you know, and then we started chatting away. Anyway, I was like, this is going really well. He's really interested in faith. Anyway, then he said, tell you what we should do. We should have some tequila shots. 
Now that's a difficult place to be on a Friday night. So I was thinking, like Paul says, to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Greeks I became a Greek, to, I became all things to all people to save any of them. So I was thinking, maybe that means I drink tequila on a Friday night. So I said, okay. So I went over to him to the bar, a couple of tequila shots. If you've ever drunk tequila, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. It hits quite hard. And um, the next thing I knew, it was like 5 a.m. I was in Soho in a karaoke bar. And... Um, <laughs> imagine the Holy Spirit in the bar just saying, Steve, that's not what Paul meant. That's just not... <laughs> Steve, I mean, how many times? That's not what Paul went. Anyway, so I wake up next morning, and I'm like, I've got to meet this pastor. I don't believe it. So I like went to meet him, nine o'clock. I felt like death. And I walked into the coffee shop, and I sat down with him. His name was Rob. Rod. He's a lovely guy. And I said, um, Rod, I don't think I should be a leader in the church. I'm not actually sure I should still go to church. And, um, and he was like, why? And I told him the whole thing. And he was so kind. He said, Steve, you know, the starting place for any authentic relationship is honesty. And it's the same with God. And you're being honest. And so what we can do now is we can just pray and you can you know, confess what you need to confess to God. And, uh, and then let's continue. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow. And so he prayed. And I felt this like breathless wonder of forgiveness. And then after that, he said, but I mean, you know, if you are going to step into leadership, then you know, <laughs> um, maybe don't want to do this that often. You know? And he was like, can we talk about what it looks like at your next work drinks party? And I was like, yes, let's do that. And, um, and I can say to this day, I've never touched tequila again. I mean, it's, it's a horrible drink. And uh, as I walked out of there, out of that coffee shop, you know, 10 o'clock on a Sunday, on a Saturday morning, I felt this extraordinary wonder of forgiveness. It wasn't the first time, but it felt like the first time. But I also felt this resolve. I'm like, Lord, yeah, I'm going I'm to live differently now. I want to live differently now. And you might have said that a hundred times in your life. You might have never said it before, but you can always say it again. It's never too late. It made such a difference to me. Now, Jesus resists harsh judgment, but he also resists weak approval. Jesus is interested in strong compassion and committed love. Jesus empowers dynamic relationships which enable the transformation of every person's life. You know, how could you receive what Jesus is giving you? This person, I mean, this woman's not going to say, actually, I'm good, I'm, I'm fine, thanks. This, this one encounter will transform the entirety of her life. Because Jesus speaks to her probably in a different way than every other man she's ever met in her life. He honors her in a different way to every other man she's ever met. And he's committed to her good in a way unlike every person she's ever met. It's kind challenge and challenging kindness. You might have messed up. Maybe you've not made a mistake like this, but you might have made a big mistake. Maybe you weren't caught in the act, but maybe there's stuff that you're hiding that's not quite right. Don't shift the blame. Don't get deceptive. Don't put distance between you and other people. Come to Jesus today. Say, Lord, I need your help. I want your forgiveness. You know, maybe you've become a bit harsh. You've started to judge people in your workplace, your family. You started to throw motives onto their actions. It's not too late. You can come to Jesus today and say, Lord, would you give me a soft heart again? 
Would you show me what you love about these people? Would you show me where I've messed up so I'm more tender when other people mess up? Jesus is extraordinarily able to hold these things together. Jesus knows you to the bottom of your soul. All of the good, all of the bad. All that you're proud of and try and push to the surface. All that you're ashamed of and try and bury. He knows you to the bottom of your soul and yet he loves you to the sky. And he is committed to your good and you can trust him. And he holds together both challenge and kindness in an extraordinary way because he is committed to your good, because you're made in the image of God, because he loves every cell of you and every atom of your being. And he's prepared to go to the cross to win you for God. And so you never have to fear when you place your life in his hands that he will let you down or forsake you or betray you or mess you up. He's committed to your good and he wants you to live a life full of joy and peace and meaning and purpose. He frees you to live without fear and full of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.